Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. What better way to end this series than with a game-changer biography which is redefining the genre? Wifedom is the new book from award-winning author Anna Funder, and yes, she says it as Funder, not Funder. It contains signature elements of her previous works, the internationally acclaimed non-fiction Stasiland and the Miles Franklin award-winning novel All That I Am, including a compelling narrative freighted with moral questions, moments of high-intensity drama and conflict, and characters who are both heroic and flawed. A hybrid of biography, fiction, slivers of memoir and feminist critique, Wifedom is an intellectual inquiry into how it's possible for a significant life and creative partner to simply disappear from accounts of a towering figure, in this case, Eric Blair, better known as George Orwell. Orwell's first wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, was a brilliant young woman who studied under Tolkien at Oxford. Her contribution to Orwell's life and work has been erased by his six male biographers. Deliberate omission or casual unintentional sexism? That is Funda's territory and she maps it with ferocity. I began by asking her whether she was a reader of biography. I'm not a great reader of biographies and until this one was nearly, this book was nearly done and my agent said, I think you've written some kind of biography. It didn't occur to me that I was doing that. I think if it had, I would have been intimidated and felt not qualified to do it. I mean, I I completely agree that it reads like a biography of an invisible woman. Really what I was doing was more sort of detective work. My husband compares me to Carrie in Homeland, who is <laughs> who is who who I hugely admire played by Claire Danes, but who is looking for the invisible spy who's under her nose and I'm looking for an invisible woman who's under the biographer's noses and Orwell's nose and should have been there. And I sort of did have this massive board with all of these scraps of evidence that the biographers had left on the cutting room floor and was kind of almost literally drawing red threads between them and so on in order to represent this woman. But I suppose because the most powerful representation of her is using her real letters in the book, which I was hugely fortunate to get permission to do but they are in fictional scenes and I think possibly any biographer worth their salt would not not think that that was any kind of legitimate biography. I have read some biographies with great pleasure and admiration so firstly obviously the six Orwell biographies that I talk about in the book. I've also read Virginia Woolf's nephew Quentin Bell's biography of her which I absolutely loved I'm slightly concerned about your husband comparing you to Carrie in Homeland, which is one of my all-time favourite shows, because yes, she is brilliant, but she is also pretty unhinged. But I'm curious, Anna, in terms of the forensic detective work, given that you have form in both fiction and non-fiction with Stasiland and All That I Am, when you were gathering all that evidence, if you didn't think that you were writing a biography, what did you think you were doing? I mean, at any point had you thought, I'm going to write a novel about the all Wells. I could have written a novel about Eileen and I could have written then a novel about the inside of this marriage, this very creative, loving, violent, complicated marriage from her point of view. It would have been a lot easier to do than what I did. But had I done that, I would have been, there would have been two things. I would have been using 
these wonderful letters of hers in which her voice, which is whimsical, acute, brilliant, tragic by turns, I would have been using that kind of for my own purposes. And I wanted a little bit like Stasiland and even a little bit like the novel All That I Am, I wanted this work to be in some ways a work of witness or an intervention into a history that had left her out. So I needed to write these fictional parts in order to make it clear what it might have felt like to be the woman who was writing that letter when you, you're you not telling your best friend that your husband is off with someone else, mm. that he's made sure that you know that, that you're bleeding, that he's off at war or whatever it is. I could write scenes in which those things that were definitely in her head at that time could be on the page as well as this letter to Nora in which she is both often telling and not telling the things that are going on. But I could not in a novel have shown these extraordinary, fundamental and very sort of sly ways in which patriarchy and I take these poor six biographers as my representatives of that has written her out of the story. Mm. And those methods are enormously interesting and they are in play in our lives today. So I needed this book to both function as an, a sort of feminist intervention into patriarchy now at the same time as showing what patriarchy did to this woman 80 years ago and on an ongoing basis as biography after biography after biography was published, which left her and her extraordinarily important influence on his life and work out. So the book had to do both things. And that meant then the form was sort of decided by the content that I wanted to put into the world. I have to say that's been the same for Stasiland, which I set out to write a novel. And I decided for the same reasons, what I had written was appalling and in, in, in its own right. But it was also appalling for kind of moral reasons as well as aesthetic reasons. And I think that those two are linked. I couldn't take the story of Miriam, one of the main characters in Stasiland, a woman who was alive and walking around Berlin and possibly running into her interrogators in the 90s and use that for my own purposes to write a novel that would privilege my voice in a similar mm. way. So it had to be nonfiction. So every time I'm writing something, I think, what does this material most need from me? How can I do it justice? At what point did you start thinking about the relationship between patriarchy and biography? Because I'm thinking it's obviously come up before in the writing of people like Drusilla Majeska. Drusilla is a wonderful writer and a dear friend and her Stravinsky's lunch is incredible. It wasn't just Stravinsky, it was the wife had to be silent and the children had to be silent. So yes. it wasn't as if he could have his lunch delivered to him, made by someone else, delivered to him in his room and continue his concentration. He required their submission mm. in an interesting way, which I also think I looked at in Wifedom, because the male genius doesn't just rely on the housework, the making of lunch, the cleaning of the latrine, the shopping, the psychological mentoring in Orwell's case, the political education, the editing, the idea for Animal Farm as a novel and so on. All of those things are what we now in this post Me Too third wave of feminism age might think would have been provided by a wife traditionally, albeit a very talented one. 
There is also something about that Stravinsky situation and about the Orwell situation where you have, in Orwell's case, an extremely talented Oxford-educated woman and you control her, you have power over her, you effectively, like Stravinsky, make her sit at the table at lunch. There's something about that psychological mechanism where the man, in order to feel like a genius or in order to feel like the centre of things, it is helpful to have someone in your orbit. So in order to feel like a star, you have to have (laughs) someone going around you. And controlling a woman of great talent, possibly superior talent, will make you feel, possibly, as a man, powerful, and that will help you in your output. So I don't see those as sort of kind of, sounds odd to say, sort of pure acts of sadism or patriarchal control or Mm -hmm. quote-unquote traditional values or something. I see them as integral to the creation of the artistic self, and that's very interesting to me because that artistic self is gendered. So that's something I wanted to look at. About the biographies, I... I read them and they were just extremely extraordinary things that are left out. Some of this is probably unconscious and some of it is conscious. So Eileen wrote to a friend saying that she thought George had a remarkable political simplicity. One of the biographers just changed that to say Eileen wrote to a friend saying he had a remarkable political sympathy. So when you see things like that, you see this very obvious rewriting of, in the first instance, and most importantly, accounts of his wife about what he was like, but also his mother, his aunt, and the many, many literate and interesting girlfriends he had both before and during his marriage. So I felt after going into the biographer's footnotes and reading the sources, and sometimes in the case of Sir Bernard Crick, getting into his archive and being able to read his transcripts of original interviews with friends and relatives and ex-girlfriends of Orwell's, I could see all of these extraordinarily interesting and, in a biographical sense, weighty things that women who knew him very well had said, which had to be left, as it were, on the cutting room floor. So Mm. Brenda Salkeld, a woman he was in love with his whole life and tried to get into bed basically, I think, unsuccessfully his whole life, told Bernard Crick, well, his attitude towards women, you see, I think that was because he was a sadist. So Bernard Crick can't put that into his biography because (sighs) she knew him too well and that would carry too much weight and it's too bald a statement. But when you look at the man who comes to write 1984, a book which is sadistic, violent and misogynistic Mm. you would think that that is of weight not as a disparagement of a man in himself but as an insight into the character of the person who had the vision that made 1984 so I just went around for years in this crazy carry-like way gathering up these snippets of information thinking I will be able to write something which will sit alongside these biographies and create a much fuller, more accurate picture of the man, the woman, the marriage and the work. 
Okay, but I mean, this is a very, very tricky dance that you've undertaken because in the acknowledgements, and I love reading acknowledgements because they're full of clues about process and sources, you thank these biographers and you say that you hope that they will take your book in the spirit in which it is intended. But at the same time, you do also accuse them quite directly of deliberate and willful blindness. And at the same time as doing that, you exonerate them by saying, we are all caught in this gendered fiction not of our own making. But isn't the patriarchy precisely that, something made by men for their convenience? Yes, it is, of course, exactly made by men for their convenience. One part of me, more recently I've been thinking, I hope that the biographers take it in the spirit in which it is intended, this book, in the sense that they perhaps have a look at their own lives and look at the gendered allocation of work in them. That's one thing. I rely on their biographies because I, they are enormous works in themselves and they glancingly mention a lot of these things, which are like tiny clues. When you read as a woman, you go looking for other things. So mm. my work is intimately connected with them. I wouldn't say I exonerate them at all. I just acknowledge that we are all written by this patriarchal script. As far as we know, we all live in patriarchy. There is no other place. So my own blindnesses, and which are probably legion, are different from theirs. And I'm acknowledging that this is not, in a sense, I mean, changing a remarkable political simplicity to a remarkable political sympathy is obviously just a shocking thing to do. <laughs> But there are lots of things which are probably unconscious, and that's what I wanted to acknowledge. However, I mean, one of the main things is that they are not, of course, interested in Eileen. Mm. And they are especially not interested in the fact that, for instance, his work is widely acknowledged to have improved after the marriage. So they say things like, well, whether by coincidence or influence, his work seemed to get better. You know, it's not by coincidence or influence. It's clearly Eileen working on all of his work because she had this brilliant brain and an Oxford education under Tolkien and others. In literature, the most extraordinary omission is really of her role in the Spanish Civil War. Yes. And that has to be willful in a way because it is such an enormous omission and not to be curious about her when she was working in the headquarters of the International Labour Party while he was off in the trenches seems to me an extraordinary thing. It does. And I have to say that for me, it is the most thrilling part of the book. You write that with a very particular kind of energy and there's just so much drama and intrigue in every in every moment of, of your account and interpretation of those days. So while he's off at the front, as you say, being all sorts of macho, she is running the office and she, she demonstrates incredible sang-froid under pressure. So she's, she's in great danger personally and she saves other people. I was wondering, you know, when I was reading about her in that moment, I thought, my God, she's surrounded by spies, some she's guessed about, some she doesn't know about. She would have made a brilliant spy herself, don't you think? <laughs> yes, she would have. But she was a woman of enormous integrity. She had the decency that Orwell would have liked to have had. That was his core value. And she had it in spades. You know, 
I'm not sure that she she would have made an excellent spy. I'm not sure that she would have wanted to do that. But that said, she was working in propaganda as well mm. as supply, communications, medical care, lending money and so on to the party she was working for. So she was rewriting, you know, desultory performance at the front probably into, you know, rather something more close to victory. And then during the war, of course, she supported Orwell for almost, well, for more than two years, almost two years of that was working in the Department of Censorship at the Ministry of Information in Senate House. Exactly. So did you check whether she had a file with MI5 or MI6? I didn't, actually. That would be a great thing to do. No, I didn't. I would find that really intriguing. I I wonder whether there might be something there. That prompts me to ask you, actually, do you think that she took her political views and values from Orwell or do you think that she had her own separate political identity? For example, after they come back from Spain, she says, I have returned to complete pacifism. Now, that wasn't his view, was it? That wasn't his view. I think she's saying that quite lightly. Before they got married, she had a range of jobs over about nine years after graduating from Oxford, including in a sort of business office producing manuscripts where she apparently rewrote the PhD of a Russian emigre, among other things she was doing. (laughs) But she worked at one point for a woman who was a bully and a terrible boss, and she organised a walkout of the other staff in protest, a walkout apparently in triumph. So she had a sense of collective action, of right and wrong, and the courage to set that in place. Her political instincts were acute, much more so than his. So in Spain, for instance, she knew much better than Orwell, who was off at the trenches, what was going on, that there was going to be this Stalinist rout of the Mm -hmm. boom and the ILP. And then working in censorship, you know, deleting the news, like Winston much later in 1984 in Senate House, which Orwell took as the model in 1984 for his Ministry of Truth, she would have had very acute political instincts. So she could read people incredibly well, but also the situation. You know, Orwell thought before the war in 39, when it was about to break out, they had a conversation where he said he thought that, you know, the proles in whom he had great faith and the population in general would rise up against the idea of war. And she said to him, no, they wouldn't. If the government declared it, they'd all get behind it. And he thought, oh, well, that's right, yes, and wrote a note of that in his notebook. So I think she, I mean, he had never been to university, so he was learning things as an autodidact on the fly and learning a lot from her. So, yes, I think she definitely had her own political sense and also the courage to act on it. Mm. Let's just go back to the six letters that you've used so creatively in Wifedom. The the book hinges on these six letters that were discovered relatively recently in 2005 that Eileen wrote to her best friend, Nora. You don't tell us how or where those letters were discovered. So how and where were they found? It's a little bit hazy. They were discovered in 2005 in the belongings of Nora, Eileen's best friend, of her nephew. So Mm -hmm. Nora Symes Miles and Quarter Smiles had no children of their own and Nora's nephew, John Durrant, they were found in his belongings and they were then published later in 2013, I think, by Peter Davison as a sort of, you know, a kind of later volume of late found things to his collected works. So they are... Extraordinary. I used them mostly, as you say, to bring her back to life because it seemed to me that a letter to one's best friend 
is such an important document. Sadly, no letters from Nora to Eileen survive, and as do very few between Eileen and Orwell. They, Eileen and Orwell were kind of seem to be quite cavalier or unsentimental about, about correspondence. And also he burnt things, didn't he? He did burn things. He did burn things. He burnt a lot of her letters, apparently, after she died. But not the ones which, you know, the very late ones at the end of her life as she's when she was ill. The first letter, when I found that, that was an enormous turning point for me. I... They got married in June 1936 and went to live in this very decrepit, ancient, 300-year-old cottage in Wallington, 30 miles out of London. It had a tin roof, no heating, no electricity, one tap, an outdoor loo, oh, and God. was very, very primitive. And the biographers write things like, it had a shop in the front room, which was closed because the villagers all did their shopping in a neighbouring village, but all they wanted to reopen it so that they could get their groceries wholesale and maybe make a few bob. But the biographers write things, sly things like, oh, he waited till she got there so that they could do that together. So that obviously hides the fact that he waits till they get there so she can set up the shop and then run it, among other things. Exactly, there. yes. So this waiting, all this passive voicing is, is the, the biographies are absolutely riddled with it. The first letter is written six months after the wedding, which was in June, nearly six months, it's November. And she writes from Orwell's parents in Southwold, a place I'm about to go and visit, which I'm very excited about. And they're there on, on holiday. So she's with the in-laws for the first time and she's enjoying it, although she says the house is very small and furnished almost entirely with portraits of ancestors. <laughs> but this is the first time she's been able to write to Nora. And so she writes to her, you know, dear Nora, I'm sorry I haven't written earlier, but we have quarrelled so continuously and really bitterly since the wedding that I thought I'd just write one letter to everyone once the murder or separation was accomplished. <laughs> so I went back to the biographers because I thought, you are hilarious and wonderful and what's going on and what are you fighting about in these early months of wifedom and why do you want to kill him, even in jest? So I go back to the biographies and they say things like, the early months of the wedding were idyllic. Orwell had never been happier before or since. Conditions <laughs> were perfect for him, etc., etc. So in between this passive voicing of her work away and these perfect conditions which exist without anyone making them and her wanting to kill him, I thought there's probably room for a book and that's what set me off Carrie style. Okay, but in the meantime, as so often happens, somebody else did get there first. Sylvia Topp was Eileen's first conventional biographer, if you like, and her book came out in 2020. So was that a setback for you to discover that there was someone else on the trail who was presumably mining the same material with the same intention? Not just mining it, no. I mean, when I first heard of that book, I contacted her and was very excited because I knew that she was going to be, I thought, you know, maybe she's going to be doing a conventional biography and there'll be lots of things in it that I don't know about Eileen. And of course, I did get a frisson of kind of worry that she might be doing something similar. But as it turned out, it was a really wonderful blessing for me, just an absolute boon and really lucky. Sylvia Topp's work 
is a crowdfunded book, came out in 2020. And she has done an enormous amount of kind of legwork and really minute research. And she had indeed found things that I hadn't found, particularly in relation to the inquest into Eileen's death Mm. and things like that. So it was good both to learn new things about her and also to be quite sure that the things that I was finding were fitting into this extensively researched, more traditional work. Sylvia Top takes a has a lot of her own interpolations into the story and her point of view, which she describes very clearly, I can't remember whether it's in the introduction or at the end, is that she sees Eileen as she herself has been. Sylvia Top is a, an older woman who was married to, a, I believe, a beat poet, a poet at any event, mm-hmm. and sees herself as a willing helpmeet to genius, someone who willingly sacrificed their own talents and future and put them in the service of a man's. So in my view, there is absolutely no evidence that that was Eileen's attitude or what she intended to do. When Eileen married Orwell, the first radical act of her editing genius was to take out the word obey from her wedding vows. Yes. And so my view of Eileen is radically different from this one, which I see more as a traditional view of wifedom where a woman goes into the service of the man whom she marries and that is precisely what I am seeking through Eileen's life and my own and this narrative and this analysis of patriarchy through the biographies to debunk and destroy for you and me and my children and everybody (laughs) else. Absolutely. But she also thinks that Eileen had a fling with Orwell's commander in Spain, George Klopp. Now, you don't think that they had an affair. We can never know for sure. But I'm just wondering, Anna, why would that matter? Because you, you, a point hinges on that, doesn't it? Yes. One of the very interesting things about Orwell's life and how the biographers interpret it goes to the, manu- the retrospective manufacturing of Eileen's consent to, firstly, what was done to her, and secondly, to what the biographers call an open marriage. Mm. So Orwell was monumentally and kind of bizarrely unfaithful to Eileen throughout the marriage, often rubbing it in her face, asking for her permission quote-unquote, to go off with a Moroccan girl. I shudder to think how old that girl was. Or actually trying to divide her from one of her close friends, Lydia, by Mm -hmm. going to bed with Lydia, which Lydia didn't want. And kind of wedging Lydia into a situation where she felt that she was going to be betraying Orwell if she didn't sleep with him and Eileen if she did. The biographers would like to say, for instance, that when Orwell, quote-unquote, asks Eileen permission, for instance, to sleep with Brenda, one of this woman who never slept with him, perhaps twice a year, (laughs) I do not read that as asking for her consent. I read that as one of his many acts of sadism where he wants to torture her with the idea that he's going to go off with other women. And there's no evidence of call at all that she did quote-unquote, consent to that. Biographers say things like, oh, well, uh, in his mind at least, 
the marriage seemed to have been declared open. A bit like hunting season, I imagine. So ah. this is kind of weird. And the reason that that's important to the biographers is because if she is not willing and consenting, and there is evidence that these affairs greatly upset her, that she once threatened to leave him, that she was extremely angry about some of them. So the evidence is rather against consent. But unless she is consenting to this so-called open marriage, his cruelty is so monumental and mm. so pathological that it is very hard to square with the image of the decent everyman genius writer. And that's what's going on. So I absolutely do not think that we should be manufacturing consent of a woman retrospectively because I think that that makes us all into accessories after the fact. Yes, I, I find one of the most telling things, Anna, is his use of the word treat. You know, he asks her for permission and says, I deserve a treat, as if he were talking about a sweet. It's not healthy desire. It's calling someone a treat is objectifying them completely. Well, yes, and I think that, you know, in his last literary notebook written in 1949, as he was suffering very badly from the TB that would kill him at the beginning of 1950, Orwell wrote a, a kind of devastating note to himself in the third person where, as if to sort of distance himself from feelings that were hard to own, and he wrote, the thing that they don't tell you about women and wives is about how disgustingly filthy and untidy they are yes. and about their terrible, devouring sexuality. In every marriage of more than a year's standing, it is always the man who is trying more and more to escape it and the woman who wants sex more and more uh, and more and more despises him for his lack of virility. So he only ever lived with one wife and that was Eileen. Those comments refer to her. I don't think that women were really what he wanted as treats. So he was able to speak about them in that way, which is objectifying, because I think that they that desire was not really what he wanted. And no. so the objectification was easier for him because he's using those women as political tools to torture Eileen. I think that his he was enormously homophobic. Yes. And obviously, and some have lived in a very homophobic time. His friends remarked on this homophobia. William Emson, for instance, the author of Seven Types of Ambiguity, was a close friend and whose wife, Orwell, had been in love with, said, you know, it was strange, this homophobia that he had, because for most of us, when we were young men and we loved the workers, we did it practically. And there's quite, you know, there's a bit of evidence of Orwell was in love with a boy at school. He spent a year, which only one of the biographers mentions, going about town in London with a homosexual man called Roditi, who's, who only liked to sleep with men who identified as heterosexual, and they went to all the vaudeville clubs and 18 Chinese restaurants and so on. Mm. His girlfriend, Mabel Fiatz, who knew him very well, thought he was homosexual. There's a lot of evidence about that. So when he's objectifying women, I think part of it is patriarchal and part of it is... He is distanced from his own desire, rather mm. tragically, perhaps. So he's, he's suppressing it. He's suppressing it like crazy. Overall, Anna, Orwell comes out of your book pretty badly as a human being, but I've seen interviews in which you say that you 
forgive him his failings. And I, I'd like you to expand on why and what the alternative would be. I'm um, not so much sitting in judgment on him because I feel that this fantasy of the decent, heterosexual, underdog, everyman genius, which the biographers would like to put forward, which we would all somehow like to believe in, which is a fantasy of male genius and purity so that we can love the creator as much as we love the work is naive and I I don't think that somebody who was such a vanilla decent you know heterosexual uncomplicated everyman could create a work like 1984 you know he would not have seen the world as split in this double think way between what was thinkable and what had to be kept under the surface. That comes from somewhere very deep, as does the sadism and violence of 1984. You know, there's an early mm. scene in 1984 where Winston fantasizes about impaling a woman, having sex with her and cutting off her head at the moment, slitting her throat at the moment of climax. Those sorts of visions are not going to come from somebody who is this decent vanilla everyman. And I think we can keep as Orwell has taught us with double think in a way or identified, we can keep these two things in mind at the same time. The man, the wife, you know, and the life that it took to make this work. I don't think of myself, you know, in my own minor way as, you know, a sort of easygoing, uh, you know, flawless individual. I think it's a, I think it's a, we want work, we want works of art written or on the screen or, on a, on a you know painting like Guernica say to speak of the Spanish Civil War, we want works of art to show us things in a beautiful and powerful way that are difficult and that are also true about humans and about life. And I think it's just too much to think that the people who are going to make them are not drawing on things that they feel very deeply that that are coming from somewhere inside them. That is the value of what they do, and why we need to have Marvel heroes as great artists <laughs> is a mystery to me. Mm. It's interesting you saying that because you are present in the narrative too. I mean, what makes this such a fascinating hybrid is this extraordinary mixture of biography, reportage, fiction, and little glimpses of memoir. And as part of a couple that is a creative couple, your husband is an architect, I wonder how you negotiate the professional ambitions of two people under one roof. Because, for example, some couples I know in a similar dynamic take turns. So when opportunities come up, they will say, it's your turn to determine whether we move to another city or it's your turn to decide how we change our schedule around this particular chance. So is that what you do? No, it's a lot more fluid. Craig has been the most extraordinary support during, you know, that's the irony of it, of course. I can only write this book about patriarchy and wife to with, <laughs> with the enormous support of an unbelievably a lovely husband. We haven't had to do those things where we've divided things up sort of turn and turn about at all. You know, I don't know what the reckoning will be at, on Judgment Day, but I feel like we support each other to the max as much as we can. I mean, I I only, you know, I write quite slowly. It's not like I'm not doing other things while I'm writing with our three children who, you know, are now much, much older. But we really... We haven't had those kinds of discussions. We both really just 
do as much as we can all the time. I mean, Craig does say things like, you couldn't have written this book without me, which of course is true at many, many levels. And, you know, he's, he's, he now says things like, oh, patriarchy, it was good while it lasted <laughs> and stuff like that. But it is, it is, I think it's very important for me to be married to somebody who is a deeply creative thinker because he can see things in the round and he can see and be enormously patient, if I'm honest, about the fact that when you start out on a on doing something, whether it's designing a city in his case or a book in mine, you don't necessarily know what you're doing. You are creating the instructions, as it were, or the path, or in my case, the form, as you're writing it. So that's both terrifying and also the essence of doing something new. And just to be to have the support of somebody who understands that is the biggest blessing in my life. Yes, because he understands uncertainty, but presumably he also has, having joked about, you know, the patriarchy, it was great while it lasted, presumably he is a feminist. Yes, yes. I mean, he, you know, we have two daughters and a son and they were growing up during, you know, the Me Too revelations. And I just think neither of us want the world to stay as it is. And for them, we want there to be a much mm. more fluid understanding of gender, including in this in the work of care that attaches to the sexes and for the children to be liberated into a world where just because you're a boy or a girl, you're expected to be doing certain things for other people without mm. being asked or without being thanked or without ever having it written of you that you did that. So, yeah, you know, he had... He had an interest in that. I mean, it was. I think it's very difficult to live with a writer, and I think it's very difficult to live with a woman in a who who, who behaves in a Carrie esque way and <laughs> writes a book called Wifedom for six years. So, yeah, you know, he's 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 a remarkable yep. bloke. Yeah, but I'm sorry, you weren't doing it undercover like Carrie, and you know, you weren't <laughs> going into war zones, and you weren't dealing with the Taliban. So there were some pluses. While we're talking of children, Richard Blair was the adopted, or is the adopted, I should say, son of Eileen and George, and now runs the Orwell Foundation. So he's very much the keeper of the flame. Did you have a lot of exchanges with him? Was he helpful? Obviously, he remembered his father, but he didn't remember Eileen as his adoptive mother. That's right. I had the great good fortune to go. Richard Blair is patron of the Orwell Society and they run little tours, you know, 10, 12 people to places of significance for Orwell. And in, at the beginning of this work in 2017, I went on a tour to Barcelona and to the battlefields of Catalonia and into the trenches, some of which are as as they sort of were left and some of which are reconstructed, where Orwell was in the Sierra of Aragon. And mm. that was extraordinary and wonderful. It was with Richard Blair and also Quentin Cop, who was the son of George Cop, Eileen's commander mm. in Spain, who everybody who was clearly in love with Eileen and who, for the reasons I was talking about before, people would like to think that Eileen had an affair with, as if that somehow evened up the scale and opened up, quote unquote, this marriage. Richard Blair would read parts of Homage to Catalonia in the places that Orwell was describing in that book. So it was just a lovely, lovely thing to do. I sent the parts of this book that are about him and him with his father, George, and the parts that are about Quentin and his father, also George, 
and the parts about my friends and the parts about my children and so on to everybody to look at, Mm -hmm. obviously, before it was published to make sure I got things right and to make sure that they were okay with it. And Quentin and Richard were enormously supportive and, you know, pleased with what I'd written. So that, that was important to me. And you travelled quite a lot for this book, not just to Spain, but you went on a bit of a sort of pilgrimage to key places that are part of the narrative. Where had the most resonance for you, where you felt that you were sort of in contact with the spirit of Eileen, if there was anywhere, or was she more elusive than that? I haven't been to Wallington. The cottage still exists, which in which they were both suffering for his art, as it were. Mm. Is that where she had to clean out that latrine? Yes, indeed. Oh, my God. And where he comes out at one stage and says tea and she realises she's in, she's sort of elbow deep in shit and she realises that he's not offering to make the tea. He's saying, come in and make the tea. Yes, although that's a fictional scene, I must point out. It's absolutely true that she had to clean that latrine because he wouldn't or couldn't do it. And it's true that she remembered that to the end of her days and pointed it out to him. And I think it came as a shock to her to have to do that. The scene where about making tea is is my imagining of of that, how that worked, (laughs) just to show that how he's not thinking of what he's requiring her to do. Yes, I did go to Jura, which is this very lovely island off the coast of Scotland where Orwell, after the relationship was over, he went and lived, he was very ill and went and lived in this very remote farmhouse on this island that it took 48 hours to get to from London after the war and he wrote 1984 there and that was Mm. extraordinary because I was driven there by the daughter of the woman who rented it to him. They were the owners of the big house to which this farm was sort of attached. And her nephew, so the grandson of the woman who rented it to Orwell, was in there with his family and we sort of sat around drinking whiskey and I went to see the old generator that had given Orwell such hell and (laughs) went into his bedroom where he'd been too ill to get out of bed and sat there with the typewriter on his bony legs retyping 5,000 words a day because he couldn't get a woman to come up and type for him in this remote Mm -hmm. place. That was really very lovely and moving. And one of the also serendipitous things about doing that kind of work is, say in Barcelona, I can describe in those Spanish scenes what Barcelona is like, what those buildings are like, what the hotel was like, what the port is like, how far the buildings are from one another when they come under fire and so on. So it's enormously important to actually go to these places. And in Jura, I was walking along one day and this very tall man was following a very tall wolfhound around and I started and I was passing him so I said hello and he said hello and it turned out that his wife Jane Carswell had done recordings with old people on Jura about 10 years before who had some of whom had known Orwell or lived there wow. when he was living there and one of them was an interview with a couple of elderly women Flora and Nancy and Flora remembered being a 17-year-old working in the pub. And to get to the pub, you had to walk from Orwell's house eight miles and then get a taxi or the postal van or perhaps ride your, he used to ride a motorcycle around with a scythe on the back of it, dressed in oil skins, kind of imagine, like, like death coming over the hill. And then somehow then ride another, you know, 20 miles down to the village or so Anyway, he turns up at the pub one day, I don't know how he got there, holding out a dead chicken. 
And he says to this girl, could you pluck that for me? And on the recording, this woman who's remembered this all her life says in this rather wonderful Scottish bro, you know, he says, could you pluck that for me? And then she just laughs like a drain. And it's this beautiful moment where you have a girl who's a lower class girl and a Scot working in a pub, still finding it ridiculous that this tall, posh man thrusts a dead chicken towards her and says, pluck that for me. And I think that there are these beautiful moments that you just find by serendipity where the sort of blanket madness of patriarchy is laughed at. And I wanted to represent that scene. So there's a couple of pages of that in, in, in Wifedom. So things like that happen which you can't plan for and can only wish for. How does the fiction amplify or extend our understanding of Eileen and what rules do you set yourself about how far you can go in terms of how far you can speculate? Well, most of the scenes are based on evidence and they include either evidence from her letters, what she said was going on for her, or other evidence that I've found elsewhere. And all of that evidence is in Footnotes or endnotes, I should say, rather, mm. at the back of the book. Very detailed. They're fascinating, Anna. <laughs> Thank you. They were murder. But I wanted, I think, you know, if you're going to take on six biographers and patriarchy, you've got to have endnotes because otherwise you're just too, too vulnerable. I felt so vulnerable doing it all. Yes. So a lot of things that are said in those fictional scenes, which are not in quotes necessarily, will be, the evidence for that will be in the endnotes. There's... I don't make up anything outrageous. I don't make up anything extreme. As I found when I was writing fiction in All That I Am or other fiction, really fiction you have to rein in from the truth. It has to be less than because things that happen in real life are so much weirder than what it would be credible in fiction. So generally I am with her in her mind as she's writing a letter, say, and as I say, I know that she's bleeding or ill. I know that he's off with another woman and has made sure she knows it. I know all of these things that she's not saying to Nora, which were going on at the time, which are true. And so I, I can put those in her mind. Other things at the center of the book, I'm talking about the hoary old question, which also concerned Orwell of whether you can still love the work of a person who was an art monster, as Claire mm. Dederer would have it. And Orwell was worried about this and wrote an essay about Dali where he's worried because he thinks Dali is an excellent draftsman and a, quote, disgusting human being. Mm. And because of the way, partly because of the way he treated his wife, he then says also slightly worried about how Dickens treated his wife, although not really dismisses that, slightly worried what it meant that Shakespeare bequeathed his second best bed only to his wife, Anne Hathaway, <laughs> and so on. So this treatment of wives, this private life of men in which they can behave in indecent ways but otherwise appear to the world as decent people, is bothering him. And I have a scene where he's writing that essay. So it's the text of that essay is the real essay. And he brings it to Eileen to write, as she did on all his work, emendations on the back of it. And she's written... So I, I discuss the essay in a non-fiction scene and talk about what that means and what he said in the actual essay. And then I move into a fictional scene where she's doing the edit. And 
when she's doing the edit, of course, it occurs to her to wonder whether how this applies in Orwell's own mind to his own life. How does he think his treatment of her is going to affect his reputation or how he thinks of himself? That's a very small leap to make. And because she would definitely have edited that essay, it's one that I feel, you know, fine about doing. So I wanted her to live. I wanted her to be a real character who we really saw, partly in her own words and partly in her deeds, which I found out about. So I guess that's what I did. And because I write fiction and I sort of keep it within the emotional realities, really, of whatever the factual events are, the most likely emotional realities, it is what it is. But it's all there to see. So you can tell what's mm. – it's because it's indented, it's extremely clear what's fiction and what's not. And there are these monstrous end notes. So, yes, that's and, my method. And, you know, there is something so corrosive, isn't there, about his – Attitude. I mean, for all the intellectual essay writing about Dickens and Dali and his awareness of these creative monsters, the letter at the end of her life that you describe as terrifying is the one in which she's writing to him about having the hysterectomy and saying, I don't think I'm really worth the money. And so he has succeeded in eroding her sense of self-worth to absolute annihilation. That's precisely it. That's exactly it. Although it has to be said that more than one biographer reads those words. So she's written a will, you know, she's taking care of things in the event that she will die on the operating table. And she's trying to find, even though she has more money than him, she's supported him during the marriage, she's earned more, she's inherited more. It seems to be his 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 control, which she actually discussed in the very first letter to Eileen about his use of his illness to keep her at home, his control of her has whittled down the self-esteem of this wonderful, independent, brilliant woman to that point where she says, I really, the trouble is, I really don't think I'm worth the money. So she really did write that. Biographers say she played down her illness writing, I don't think I'm worth the money. So they're using this <laughs> misogynist trope by which a woman makes light of or belittles her own needs and therefore it cannot be the man's fault, the man, her husband, who should be caring for her, mm. not to see these things. He, they also go to enormous lengths to hide with torturous grammar the fact that he knows that she's very ill and has gone off to Europe nevertheless. So they say, you know, three weeks after he left for Europe, she had become ill which makes no grammatical sense, but they have to do that because she was already ill and he knew she was very ill and he left yeah. her. So, yes. It's hard. It's very hard, that stuff. It's very, very hard to read. Finally, Anna, perhaps your boldest claim in the book is that you think of Animal Farm as a collaboration. What makes you, what makes you so sure? Well, for one thing, the story in the Blair family is that it was that her hand in Animal Farm was much greater than has normally been acknowledged. If you read his work, Animal Farm is an absolute outlier in all of it. It's unlike anything else. And the tone of whimsy and humour, the ensemble cast of characters rather than almost everything else has a stand-in, disgruntled, every man, underdog like Orwell, John Florey, Winston, Gordon Comstock and so on. 
Eileen had studied under Tolkien, as I said. She understood the nature of fables and was a fabulous storyteller. She had finished support. She'd finished working at the Department of Censorship and was working at the Ministry of Food when she was writing when they were working on, on Animal Farm. And we know what was going on then because her colleague, Lettuce Cooper, aptly named for someone who's working at uh, the Ministry of Food, was a very well-known novelist. And she, she wrote a character based on Eileen and she also wrote about Eileen. And she wrote that, so the family knows that Orwell set out to write an essay critical of Stalin in 1944. And Eileen, whose political instincts were acute and who'd been working in censorship, said you will never get that published because Stalin mm. right now is helping us try and stop this blitz that are of Hitler's bombs on London that we are suffering now. You'll never get that published. So they turned to write a novel instead, a satire about about Stalin. They had, they had quite a lot of trouble getting it published anyway. But after it was written, even Orwell's publisher, Fred Warburg, who knew him very well and knew her very well, said, and was very fond of her, said, I just can't understand it. The writer of rather grey novels has suddenly taken wings and become a poet. So every day, every day he worked on it, and every day she went to work in the Ministry of Food, she shopped at lunchtime, brought the food home, cooked it for him and whoever else was there who'd been bombed out or was just coming over. And then they got into bed together because it was the warmest place. They couldn't afford mm. to heat the flat. Went over what he did each day. And each day she went back into the ministry and regaled her friends with the next instalment. And then she would go home, do it all again, and work on it in the evenings with him. It was done in three months. And I think it's very clear that her influence was enormous. I think it's extraordinarily ironic that she always signed her letters to Nora Pig and we never find out why she ever called herself Pig. And And the irony of that, of course, is that the pigs have the central role in Animal Farm. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. So you're still reading Orwell with admiration. You're still reading him. Well, I don't know if you're reading him with affection, but you're reading him with respect and admiration. A lot of other people, you know, I would probably put myself in this camp, would now say, no, I'm sorry, he's, he's just a total shit and I, I never want to read him again. You explore that idea and, and tease out what the alternative to not forgiving Orwell his flaws would be. Can you just elaborate a bit on that? Well, I'm not really sitting in judgment. I'm looking at a man and a woman and the work that they made the world that they lived in, how it resembles the world that I live in, the roles that I have and my husband have has and how we're expected to be. I'm sitting in judgment on patriarchy, but I'm looking curiously at particular marriages, his and to a much lesser extent mine and my friends, and seeing how that worked. I have enormous sympathy for Orwell, he worked incredibly hard and was extremely ill, but he was also a sadist, a misogynist, possibly deeply unbeknownst to himself or known homosexual. And those things are interesting and difficult, but the work comes as much out of those flaws as it does out of anything else. And that's something that I understand very deeply. So I don't think that cancelling you know, I'm too much a student of tyranny in the 20th century to talk about, you know, liquidating or cancelling or burning anything or anybody. And I really thought, well, look, 
she has actually already been cancelled by patriarchy. So what I'm doing is bringing her back into the picture and showing how that particular cancelling, minimising, imputing of consent worked. So I don't, I think that if you expect a person to be as good as their work, that's an impossibility. And if you want to cancel them because they're not as good as their work, that is a, a dynamic from which it's a kind of tyranny from which no art can come. So I'm not interested in that. That phrase of Anna's, we all live in patriarchy, there is no other place, is chillingly resonant. Wifedom throws up examples of biographical doublethink and challenges them with incontrovertible evidence. More than a biography, Wifedom is a sustained manifesto for creative equality and recognition. At a time when the Barbie film is being hailed as feminist, it is worth remembering that things are not quite as liberated as they may seem and that there's still a long way to go to redress the balance of one-sided narratives that dominate our culture. But there are no more excuses. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and edited by Kira Jordan for Pipewolf Media. This is the last episode of the series to benefit from a grant from Create New South Wales, and I would like to thank them for their support. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to elders past and present and to all First Nations storytellers. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. Life Sentences will be back with a new season for the holidays at the end of December. In the meantime, if you like what you hear, leave us a review, as it really does help. <laughs>